This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Louisa Romolino, reviews director at Publishers Weekly, filling in for Mark Rotella this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from the PW offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Phil Clay discusses his new short story collection, Redeployment. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese provides a preview of the upcoming London Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So what's on the nonfiction list this week? Well, number three on our hardcover nonfiction list is the Dark Souls 2 Collector's Edition Strategy Guide. We've seen several video game strategy guides hit our bestseller list in recent months. Like the others, this one is a handsome object that hardcore fans will find worth purchasing, even though most of the information it contains can be found for free online. And at number eight is 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, A True Story, by Nightline anchor Dan Harris. Harris experienced a panic attack while on Good Morning America, and in this book he describes his efforts to treat his stress and anxiety something that should work for everyone, hopefully. And then we have the Sibley Guide to Birds, 2nd edition, at number 10. It's the definitive guide to birds, which is always a bestseller, full of beautifully hand-drawn illustrations, and maybe our first sign of spring. That would be nice. Well, on the fiction list, we have a new number one hardcover fiction, Danielle Steele's Power Play. This is a suspenseful story of two very different hard-driving CEOs. Uh, One is a devoted single mom, and the other is an adulterous husband. And she contrasts their stories and also incorporates the story of uh, the man's wife and mistress. So this is really a story about women making it in the business world, breaking through that glass ceiling. At number three is Patricia Briggs's Night Broken. This is the eighth urban fantasy starring auto mechanic and coyote shapeshifter Mercy Thompson. It's a very popular series. And this time she has to contend with werewolf pack politics while helping her boyfriend's ex-wife dodge a dangerous stalker who's a volcano god. So that's not someone you want to go up against in a dark alley. And of special interest to our listeners is Chris Pavoni's The Accident at number 19. It's a thriller set in the world of publishing, not something you see every day. And uh, we gave it a starred review and said, despite the far-fetched conceit, Pavoni makes the story credible and the suspense is palpable. So that's what's on tap in the fiction bestsellers. I'm Louisa Romolino. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Phil Clay will tell us how he turned his military experience into a stunning collection of wartime stories. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Louise Ermolino. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Phil Clay on the line. His debut story collection is Redeployment. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you on. So tell us a little bit about your book. 
so it's uh, 12, 12 short stories all by uh, people who served in Iraq, They're, but but from different perspectives. So you have an infantryman, a, a chaplain, a foreign service officer who ran a provincial reconstruction team, a psychological operations specialist, um, and uh, so all first-person narratives about those experiences both overseas and also coming home. And what made you decide to tell these experiences through fiction rather than nonfiction? It was the best way that I knew how to how to deal with or, or you know think about the subjects that were really important to me. You know, I came back from Iraq. Um, I was a staff officer. I hung out with a lot of different types of Marines and sailors and soldiers, and 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 then also experienced the, the weirdness of coming home. And I wanted to to think about what those meant, uh, and I wanted to have you know different narrators with you know, different viewpoints on Iraq so that you could get uh, a kind of broader vision and, and, and compare the different ways in which people were interpreting their experiences. So you're talking about the, the weirdness of coming home. We were looking over your biography and saw that after you came back from your tour in Iraq in 2009, uh, you left the Marines and enrolled in an MFA program. So that, that must have been pretty disorienting for you. <laughs> well, yeah, it was uh, the, an MFA program has a distinctly different culture than the Marine Corps. I imagine. Um, uh, but it was, it, you know, it was great. I mean, I, I do remember uh, my friend Bill Cheng, uh, who wrote uh, Southern Cross of Dogs, a great book, uh, at one point taking me aside very early on and going like, uh, you know, Phil, maybe in the class discussions you should be a little less aggressive. <laughs> uh, I was just, uh, you know, used to a different way of expressing myself. But um, but it was, it was phenomenal and also really, I think, really important for me um, when I was developing to, uh, to get those... Um, uh, there were a lot of really smart civilian readers who had very different takes on the stuff that I was doing um, than you know, some of the veteran readers who were also very important to the book. So um, going back a little bit, you graduated from Dartmouth in 2005. Uh, what made you decide to go to war after that? Um, so I made, I made the decision. I started the process of joining the Marine Corps in 2003 um, when we were in the lead-up to the Iraq War. Uh, and I went to officer candidate school in my junior summer and then was commissioned in 2005. Uh, and I, I wanted to serve. I wanted to go over there. I figured it was a you know, kind of important moment in our country's history. And uh, I, you know, I wanted to do my part. I was hopeful that I could make things better. And you know, it's, uh, I'm one of three boy, uh, one of five boys uh, in my family, and three of us joined the military. So you're used to fighting. If you're one of five <laughs> boys, yeah. Um, tell me, would you, do you think you would have joined if it was a peacetime army? Would it have been as attractive? Uh, probably not. I think that um, you know the notion of whether or not we should have gone overseas, but what we could do now that now that we were going. I mean that uh, that appealed to me. I wanted to put my I wanted to put myself in a place where I where I have responsibility and ability to hopefully you know affect things affect things for the better. And of course, there's always going to be the question of the extent to which this fiction is nonfiction, to which it's autobiographical. Um, how how did you mix your own experiences and the fictional aspects? Um, you know, there's there's no narrator that's 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 me. There's no public affairs officer. Um, didn't have to. David Abrams already wrote that 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 book. It's called Fog. It's very funny, um, um, and dark. But um, 
I think every story is 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 you know informed by my own sensibility, um, and I, I I honestly don't know. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a mix of research and personal experiences, and you know people that I talk to or uh, things that, that that friends while I was writing the story helped point out to me, or or, or you know things that I had read about. I tried to just kind of fill my head up with as much information about the subjects that that um, that interested me or bothered me, uh, so that I'd be able to then you know deal with them in, in some kind of rigorous and uh, informed way. Phil, did you read a lot of other uh, stories about war, like Tim O'Brien or Tobias Wolff or Dispatches from Vietnam or Johnny Get Your Gun? Did you have you did you read those before, or were you interested in reading them after? Yes, well, you know, it's, it's funny. I'd, I'd never read much war fiction, um, uh, but then I, I read some Japanese uh, War II stuff um, that was important to me, but um, I had an advisor, Tom Slay, when I was at college, who had me reading Tolstoy and Babel and, and Hemingway, and uh, you know, he figured that if I was going to war, I should I should read up um, what some some of the you know, greatest minds had to say about it. And then I kept reading, and I, you know, I read while I was in Iraq, I read Gravity's Rainbow and Don Quixote and, and um, Anthony Powell's The Dance and the Music of Time and, and, and other things. Um, and certainly, you know, you know, while I was writing some stories, if I'd want to get into a certain sensibility, um, I would try and guide my reading toward what might be useful for that. You know, um, Wagugali's Beer in the Snooker Club um, was helpful for, you know, writing uh, one of the stories. And, and uh, The Good Soldier Schweck and, and, you know, a bunch of other, uh, a bunch of other books. And also, of course, memoirs and, and, and books about, Iraq, um, uh, you know the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction reports, and and uh, uh, Jessica Goodell, Shade Black, and, and you know, just trying, just trying to, as I said, fill my head up with as many things as possible about the subject. So, um, turning it around, uh, how did your writing and your reading, uh, your studies in English and creative writing, uh, prove useful to you while you were in the military? Well, I was a public affairs officer, so working with my Marines, you know, writing was uh, something we were all very interested in um, because I had, you know, I had combat correspondents uh, working for me. Um, so we talked about writing all the time, uh, and I really loved that aspect of the job. But it's also, I mean, I think just, you know, writing is, uh, and, you know, English is, is, is all about sort of just experiencing other perspectives and viewpoints and, and, and broadening. Uh, your view of the world and that's that's valuable in war as in other things you write when you were in Iraq or basically just read an experience I I tried to write I wrote the worst stuff possible not about um, military things either um, uh, but I think I, I think that you don't really you know you don't really have the the brain space uh, to 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 do that. So mainly, I think what was mostly useful were notes. Um, I later learned apparently, I guess Anthony Powell stopped writing during World War II, and that, that was a comfort to me because the stuff that I was producing was not not good. It, it, it took uh, it took time and, and a little bit of reflection uh, to really get into the writing of this book. 
So how did it feel um, to hit the bestseller list? That's a big, big deal. I mean, it felt amazing. Um, I'm just, I'm really happy that people are, are engaging with the book. You know, that's that's what I wanted to, you know, have people read it and think about it and have their own opinions. And, and, have you started uh, your tour? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in Denver right now. Uh, and it's been, it's been amazing, and, you know, talking with a lot of folks about the book and, you know, you, you have, you know, Veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, you uh, civilians, you you know Vietnam vets, and all sorts of uh, you know folk of you know anti-war folk or uh, whatever different you know people from very different perspectives of you know come to readings and ask questions, and it's been it's been pretty remarkable. So. I was actually going to ask Phil uh, whether there is a pro-war and anti-war slant to this, uh, if there's a, a political tack that you take, or if it's just more about the the facts on the ground and letting people draw their own conclusions. Right. It's about the experiences. Um, you know, the, I think the narrators of, of the stories, you know, some of them would, would probably lean more towards the right. Uh, some of them, you know, U.S. politics, and some would lean more towards the left, and and some aren't that interested. Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, it's was anti-war, whatever. I just want to talk about. I want to talk about the experience as honestly as I can, and that means talking about you know the ugly facets, uh, facets of it, but you know also. Also, some of the things that that, that appeal uh, appeal to people about joining the military and the experience and 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 what that can mean for for people. Did anything about being in the military shock you? I don't mean the fact of being at war, but I mean the fact of living with a group of men who were trained in this way. I know you you went to Regis, didn't you? Yes. So you were used to old boys there, but what? <sighs> Was anything surprising for you? And you come from a family of boys, but now you're in this situation with all these men. Was there anything that shocked you well, about there, that? Well, there are women over there, too. Right. Um, uh, and I uh, worked with a lot of great uh, women in Marines. I mean, I think you know, plenty of things shocked me, right? Uh -huh. um, like what? I mean, the first time I walked into... Um, First, first time I saw somebody very badly injured from a suicide truck bombing. Um, uh, guys who had had very hard deployments talking about talking about how they would talk to their families when they got back home about what uh, they'd been through. Or, um, I mean, there are plenty of sort of intense and extreme experience were just like really hard jobs talking to the mortuary affairs folk whose job is, is you know to prepare the you know clip the bodies of the, of the dead and prepare them to be sent home um, you know it's just a there's an incredible variety of, of experience and and uh, and plenty of those things were just sort of shocking and fascinating I think you know what what the military was was so much broader than any any of my notions about it had been, uh, and so I think you know that's probably part of why it was important to me to do the to do the book as as twelve stories uh, from from very different viewpoints and, and experiences. What's been the reaction from um, people you served with? 
It's actually it's been very good. I've, I've gotten a, a very positive response from veterans, and I I wasn't I didn't I didn't know if I would um, because you know the, the book talks about some very hard things, um, but I think that um, so far it seems like you know people appreciate uh, at the very least that I'm you know trying trying to talk about these subjects and, and engage people. And I think that, uh, you know, I think everybody wants, you know, you respect somebody by talking about their, their experience as it really was, you know, not as, as, as some sort of idealized version of it, right? Uh, and, and I think that uh, so far, at least, um, uh, veterans seem to have been really appreciative. So do you think that you're going to continue writing about war now that this book is kind of out of your system? <laughs> um, I'll keep writing. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I'm working on a novel, but um, we'll, see what, we'll see what comes. Well, we've been talking with Phil Clay. You can find his book, Redeployment, in stores right now. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Louisa Romolino, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese takes us across the Atlantic to the London Book Fair. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Louise Ermolino. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us what's coming up at the London Book Fair. Hi, Andrew. Greetings, Rose. It's very nice to have you here, as always. So uh, what's what's going on across the Atlantic in April? Uh, the London Book Fair from April uh, 8th to 10th, I believe, were the dates this year. And this has quickly become one of my favorite trips as a reporter. And really why not what better than a spring trip to london you know the city of shakespeare uh london obviously is a lovely city full of history great restaurants and culture so lucky me uh this is the 43rd year i believe of the london book fair and it's worth noting that the fair has steadily grown in attendance year over year throughout the decade uh with the one exception being 2010 when that icelandic volcano whose name i defy you or any of our listeners to pronounce exploded in an ash cloud shut down air traffic all over europe right um so can you pronounce the name of that volcano rose i'm not gonna try (laughs) I, I haven't even heard it since 2010. So I can't even spell it. I certainly can <laughs> say it. Uh, so last year's show drew about tw- just over 25,000 attendees. And I expect that this year we're going to see probably even higher numbers. Uh, and I think it's also worth noting that this is the last year that the show is going to be held in its West London Earl's Court home, uh, which is actually being demolished after failing to get landmark status. I'm pretty sad about that because Earl's Court is a great, if a little bit antiquated venue. Uh, but thankfully, fair officials are able to strike a deal to keep the show in West London at the Olympia, and that's just a stone's throw from Earl's Court. Now, it's not that I don't love East London and other neighborhoods in London. I do. Uh, But they were talking about moving the show to the Docklands or to places that were not terribly convenient, and that really had people quite stirred up. Um, So nevertheless, I expect a, a pretty big year and a little bit of fanfare at the last show at Earl's Court. So you mentioned that it's been growing and growing. Why do you think it's gained so much in popularity? I think for a few reasons. You know, if if you recall over the last decade with the dawn of the internet, uh, you know, digital is always disrupting something, right? And the talk on about book fairs was that you know, did people really need to spend money and go to these big international trade?
trade shows at all. Uh, and London, I think, has responded very nimbly to that challenge by really changing up their program. You know, they added a, a tech conference the day before the show. Uh, they brought technology into the exhibits, and they really sort of expanded their professional program uh, with a lot of programs now dedicated to digital. Um, and not just London. I think you know the world's biggest book fair, Frankfurt, has done a great job at this too, as has uh, BEA in New York. You know, I think the organizers of all these shows have seen that they needed to sort of remake their programs, and they've done a really great job doing it. You know, as someone who goes to all of these shows, I've been you know quite happy with the programs. Uh, and you know, again, I'll point back to 2010 when that Icelandic volcano blew up. Half the London Book Fair's attendance didn't show up, and many people thought, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe people won't go to the fair and they'll realize that they don't need to go to the fair. In fact, just the opposite happened. People didn't go to the fair and they really missed it. They really missed the face-to-face networking and they really missed uh, the the ease of, of getting you know business done face-to-face. The next year saw record attendance. So you really think there are a lot of benefits to all these face-to-face meetings, even in the digital era? Absolutely. Um, especially, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a literary agent who I ran into today who's also going to London, and he actually made a point of that. You know, you can certainly do a lot of business over the internet now, but there's nothing like sitting down face-to-face with somebody, especially you're checking with your co-agents, etc., uh, and really sort of pushing things along. And also, it's always good to look a person in the eye when you, when you strike a deal, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, so can you give us a sense of uh, what what's on the program, what the highlights are going to be? Well, there's always a few great author events that are there, but you know, most of it is, is very professional-oriented. You know, There's over 200 professional seminars, um, including my favorite favorite session, which is uh, this great Oxford-style debate, uh, which is hosted by the Copyright Clearance Center's Michael Healy and uh, Susan Danziger. Uh, I think her her new company is called... Video, I want to say it's a video company. I'm sorry, Susan, if I if I butchered the name. Uh, last year, the topic was Amazon, friend or foe. So you can imagine uh, what kind of a spirited debate. I'm sure that got. Though I have to say, I, I think they probably struggled to find people who would actually go on stage and bad, you know, take a position against Amazon <laughs> for fear of retaliation. But they did, and it was actually a really good program. Now, the professional program can involve everything from uh, you know the changing rights trade, and certainly the rights trade has changed a lot with digital. Uh, to things like metadata, and it's funny because years ago metadata never would have you know made it onto the world stage, and now it's become like the new cool thing to talk about in publishing. It's just so very important. In fact, there's an entire track dedicated to metadata now in the professional program. For our listeners who aren't entirely familiar with the term, what is metadata? Yeah, I probably should explain what metadata is. Metadata is you know all of that little all of that information about your book that lets people know what it is: the title, the author, the price, the number of pages. All all of this stuff that's really sort of essential to finding the book in the first place. Um, back in the day, it was, you know, done manually, and now it, a lot of it is scraped off the internet. A lot of it is still entered into systems. But if you don't have good, right, correct metadata, robust metadata, your chances of having your book discovered on the internet are a lot less now. So people are really uh, taking quite an interest in, in improving their metadata practices. I just like saying the word metadata, obviously. <laughs> Uh, so some of these sessions, as you can tell, can be pretty technical. And some of them, especially the marketing sessions and the author-driven sessions, can be pretty entertaining. And I think the development that has really caught my eye, both in London as well as in Frankfurt, is the expansion of the fairs program to the public. 
And this comes in two ways. First, with consumers, because what the web has enabled is for publishers to finally become more directly connected with their readers, uh, rather than always through the retailers. You know, a common theme in recent years has been the need for the industry to pivot from this business-to-business model, where you know the the publisher's customer is a Barnes and Noble or a Baker and Taylor, who then sell on to the consumer, to becoming a business-to-consumer model, where the customer is actually the reader. You know, we're seeing a lot more of that, and in many ways. You know, publishers are selling more and more and certainly advertising more and more directly to readers. And I think the book fairs are really sort of leading the charge uh, for, you know, that to happen, that B2C transformation to happen. And then there's the self-publishing aspect of the show. Uh, London now has a special day devoted to writers and an author program. And uh, self-published authors are coming to the fair to connect with service providers. And there is a, there are a lot of service providers emerging. Last year, this part of the show was absolutely jammed. Um, some parts of the show floor were, were tumbleweeds, but you couldn't make your way through the hallways We're in the self-publishing section of the London Book Fair. So this is perhaps the most vibrant, vibrant aspect of the fair, and I've really enjoyed watching this segment grow and I really enjoyed meeting with all of the new voices I met last year in London as that trend emerged. So uh, international plane tickets aren't cheap. What makes it worth PW's while to send you out there? What's PW's role in the fair? Well, we have show dailies. We report every day uh, on the goings-on. We do a print edition that's distributed on the floor and outside of the arena at the show. And they're always you know, filled with nice features and news. Um, we do a lot of coverage of the show here at home. And you know, we talk about looking people in the eye and dealing with them directly there's a, certainly a lot of value for that too and we are an international magazine here at PW and um, there's not a minute of my day when I'm in London covering the show where I'm not you know sitting down with somebody talking about something which I really enjoy so it's, you know it's certainly a great time for me to be there and to see all of my European counterparts face to face so will all that coverage be available on the website, too? All of that coverage will be available on the website. The London Show Dailies will be available to browse on our website at the same time that they're available on the show floor uh, in London. Of course, they won't be in print here. They'll be online. But, uh, yes, all of that will be available. And speaking of talking to people, uh, do you want to throw in a plug for the other bit of talking that you do for PW, for your podcast? My podcast, which we miss you every week that we I record. I miss you, too. <laughs> yes, our podcast uh, is on the PW website. We do it with uh, Copyright Clearance Center's Chris Keneally, and we share an engineer in Jeremy Brisky. We do. And every week we talk about the upcoming news and the news of the week in Publishers Weekly. That's available on the PW website every week. So, yeah, please do check it out. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's always a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure, Rose. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Louisa Ermolino, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 